So you have joined me for another episode of A Guest at the Past 1892. Welcome. This episode, chock full of crazy little true crime stories and tales of unfathomable misery. A national story first, one that horrified Americans a few days earlier, but still being reported on as grisly new details continue to emerge. Indianapolis, Indiana. A janitor at the National Surgical Institute saw flames in a secretary's office on the third floor of the four-story hospital building just before midnight on January 21st. The fire spread quickly and put the hospital's approximately 300 patients in a complete panic, many of whom were children and disabled. Fire blocked routes to escape, and by the time the fire department arrived, patients were hanging from window fire escapes in their thin night dresses, dangling in freezing temperatures, many dropping to their deaths on the sidewalks below. Others suffocated and burned to death. When the smoke finally cleared, 19 people would be found dead, in or because of the fire, and 30 people would be injured. But heroic firefighters ultimately saved more than 250 people. The hospital would take enormous flack for being a veritable fire trap, with narrow stairways, dark hallways, and the interior a maze that made finding exits almost impossible. Also on this same day, the Democratic National Committee met in Washington, D.C., and chose Chicago as its place for the National Democratic Convention, and chose the date as well, June 21st. So let's dig around now through some of today's papers and see what villainy we might unmask. First, a shocking story out of the public ledger in Memphis, Tennessee. Page 1. The details of this crime were not limited to local papers only, by the way. A special dispatch version was delivered to readers across the country. But we are going to read straight from a Memphis paper, because this was indeed a Memphis crime. The headline? I loved her so. And that is why I cut her throat. The strangest and most unnatural murder in the history of the city and state was committed yesterday afternoon at 4.30 o'clock. The place was the paved walk on the north side of the Custom House grounds, leading from Front Street to the levee. The murderess was a girl of 19, the daughter of a wealthy and honored citizen. The murdered was a pretty miss of 17, who was, until lately, her dearest friend. Within half an hour, she was a creature full of the bounding health of youth, and a corpse lying on an undertaker's table, her clothing saturated with the blood that had gushed from a ghastly gash in the neck, from which the crimson drops still flowed sluggishly down upon her white bosom. The weapon used was a razor, and it had done its work only too well. 
The delicate hand that dealt the fatal stroke had guided it relentlessly to the seat of life, and when it was withdrawn, the victim's head had been almost severed from the body. The cut extended from ear to ear and through the spinal column. Two former strokes had laid open her cheekbone from eave to mouth and slashed her chin to the bone. At 20 minutes past four o'clock, three well-dressed and attractive young women started down the paved walk toward the river. They were Mrs. Josephine and Frida Ward and their friend, Miss Christine Purnell. The Mrs. Ward were on their way to take passage on the steamer Ora Lee for Goldust, Arkansas, where they live with their father, a former Memphian who is engaged in planting and merchandising on the other side. Miss Purnell was going to see them off. She was walking behind the two sisters and engaged with them in a merry discussion of the sights and events of the day. They had no thought of danger, save from the uncertain footing of the walk, which was still slippery from the late snow when it was used by the young people as a toboggan slide. On this account, the girls walked in single file, Miss Frida bringing up the rear. When the trio had nearly reached the foot of the walk, a buggy containing two young women and a small boy came down the roadway north of the Custom House. These were Miss Alice Mitchell, her friend Miss Lily Johnson, and Thomas Mayer, Miss Johnson's nephew. The vehicle was stopped when nearly opposite the three girls on the walk, and Miss Mitchell sprang out and walked hurriedly after them. Overtaking Miss Frida Ward, she caught hold of her and pulled her around. At the same moment, she drew a razor from the folds of her dress, and with it slashed open Miss Frida's left cheek. A second stroke followed leaving a terrible gash in her chin, and Frida dropped to the sidewalk. Upon this, Miss Joe Ward rushed at Miss Mitchell and crying out, You shan't treat my sister so, struck her with an umbrella. Miss Mitchell slipped and fell, but immediately arose and made a cut at Miss Joe, inflicting a painful wound on her left breast. In the meantime, Miss Frida had arisen and was flying toward the river. Miss Mitchell set out in pursuit and overtook her prey at the first railroad track on the levee. Grasping her by the hair, Miss Mitchell pulled her head back, exposing the round white throat. Again, the keen razor was brought into play, and this time it did its work with frightful completeness. The girl was almost beheaded and fell fainting to the ground, which was soon drenched with her rushing blood. Her purpose accomplished, Miss Mitchell gazed for a moment at the writhing form of her former friend and then turned and sped back up the hill to the buggy, saying to Miss Johnson, I have done it. She sprang in over the wheel and drove furiously homeward. By this time, a large crowd had collected on the scene of the crime, 
Wade and Son's delivery wagon coming up from the levee. The mangled girl was lifted up by strong and tender hands and placed in it, and the driver told to go to Dr. W.B. Rogers' office. The wagon started, but before it had gone a square, the spirit of Frida Ward parted from its blood-stained, disfigured casement. The body was taken to Stanley and Hinton's undertaking establishment on Madison Street, where it was viewed by throngs of the morbidly curious. Many more crowded about the doors and stood for an hour, waiting for a chance to slip in and feast their eyes on the gruesome spectacle. It was indeed God's good handiwork, marred by the violent hands of his creator. The girl's blue eyes were open and fixed in a stare of horror. Her pretty dark hair was disheveled, and here and there on the end of the brown locks there was a splotch of red that needed no explanation. Judging from the condition of her clothing and of the ground where she fell the last time, and of the delivery wagon. She must have lost nearly every drop of blood in her body. As soon as Miss Frida had been placed in the wagon, Miss Joe Ward and Miss Purnell walked back up the hill and, going to Toof McGowan and Company's house, told who had done the cutting. Miss Ward then went to the home of her friend, Miss Kimbrough, on Hernando Street, Dr. Kice was called in and dressed her wound, which he had pronounced severe, but not dangerous. Had the razor blade cut a half inch deeper, the young lady would have accompanied her sister to the dark beyond. Justice Elliot was notified, and repairing to Stanley and Hinton's, impaneled a jury of inquest, consisting of John W. Lavins, Adolf Ewerhart, J.T. Stanton, Henry S. Levy, C.E. Klein, J.F. Benton, and B.H. Haverman. The jury heard the testimony of Mrs. Joe Ward and Brunel, which was substantially as stated above. They were corroborated by John W. Williams, a young man who works at 308 Main Street and who witnessed the encounter on the sidewalk. The jury found that Frida Ward had come to her death by wounds inflicted by a sharp instrument in the hands of Alice Mitchell on Monday, January 25, 1892. A half hour after the tragedy, Miss Alice Mitchell was arrested by Chief Davis and Sergeant Kehoe at her father's residence, number 215 Union Street. She was perfectly composed and seemed to be expecting the process of the law. At her request, the chief waited until her father arrived. They have come about that cutting, said Mrs. Mitchell to her husband. Who did it, he asked. Alice. A hack was summoned by telephone. The chief, Mr. Mitchell, and the girl entered it and were driven to the station house, where a large crowd had assembled to get a look at the prisoner. They failed to gratify their curiosity beyond a limited extent, however, as she was heavily veiled. 
Escorted by officers and her father, she went immediately upstairs. There, she and her father were shown into a room adjoining the chief's office, where they talked together in low tones. The chief consulted with Sheriff McLendon, who was in waiting, and they decided to remove the prisoner at once to the county jail, which was done. She was sometime later placed in a private cell, directly opposite that occupied by Colonel H. Clay King, which had been fitted up for her accommodation, and where her father kept her company half the night. Her left hand was bandaged, she having accidentally cut herself while slashing her victim. Several reporters tried to get a statement from the prisoner, but her father, speaking for her, defeated the attempt, saying, we don't wish to talk about it tonight. Sometime afterward, General Luke E. Wright, who, with Colonel George Gant, had been retained for the defense, visited his client at the jail and had a consultation with her. It is said that the reason she gave for the killing was that she loved Frida Ward so fondly that she could not bear to have her live estranged. The razor with which the work was done, she said, she had taken from her father's dressing case. She also said that Miss Lily Johnson was not aware of her intention to do Miss Frida Ward any injury. This part of the story was corroborated by Miss Johnson in an interview with a reporter. She stated that Allie Mitchell was infatuated with Frida Ward, and the two were very intimate until the connection was broken off through Mrs. W.H. Volkmar, Frida's elder sister, who wrote to Mrs. Mitchell, calling her attention to the unnatural affection entertained for Frida by her daughter and asking that their association be discontinued. Since that time, the Ward girls had not spoken to Miss Mitchell when they chanced to meet on the streets, and the estrangement preyed upon Miss Mitchell's mind. Yesterday afternoon, she, Miss Johnson, went driving with Miss Mitchell and young Mayor. In passing Dr. Kimbrough's residence on Hernando Street, they saw the Mrs. Ward. As a quick aside, the Mrs. Ward means the two Miss Wards. An interesting plurality. Anyway, they saw the Mrs. Ward come out of the gate and start off downtown. Miss Mitchell drove along slowly, keeping them in sight until the post office was reached. There, Mrs. Johnson and Mitchell alighted, the former intending to call for her mail. The Ward sisters and Miss Purnell passed then, and Miss Mitchell said, Lily, I must see Fred once more before she leaves. Don't you want to go with me? Miss Johnson said no and got back into the buggy, being afraid to leave the horse with the boy. A few minutes later, Miss Mitchell came running back and jumped into the buggy. Her hat had fallen off, and her face, hands, and dress were bloody. I have cut Fred's throat, she cried. I don't know whether I killed her or not, but I loved her 
so I couldn't help it. She caught up the reins and drove off furiously toward home. She refused to let Miss Johnson wipe the stains from her face. It's Fred's blood, she said, and you know how I loved her. Miss Johnson added that Miss Mitchell had often said she wanted to marry Fred, and when told that such a union was impossible, she would say that in that case she would never marry anyone. She took the separation from her idol very much to heart, and her despondency was greatly increased by having a letter that she wrote to Miss Frida not long ago returned to her unopened. The families of the parties are well-known and among the most respectable people of this county. Mr. George Mitchell, the father of the Slayer, was until lately the senior partner in the furniture house of Mitchell and Bryson, which is now dissolved. He is a man of means and universally popular. His brother is a millionaire furniture manufacturer of Cincinnati. The father of the dead girl is Mr. Tom Ward, formerly a machinist of the city, but now engaged in farming and merchandising at Goldust, Arkansas. Judge DuBose and Attorney General Peters had Miss Joe Ward, sister of the dead girl, and Miss Purnell, who was with them, before them today in the jury room and questioned them as to the unfortunate affair. The only thing new was that Letters were exchanged between the dead girl and her slayer. It is understood that Miss Mitchell's counsel have in their possession letters from Miss Ward to Miss Mitchell, which may change the whole matter and put a different aspect on this tragedy. Judge DuBose issued a warrant for the arrest of Miss Johnson, who rode in the buggy with Miss Mitchell on the charge of being a principal in the murder of Miss Ward, as provided by the statute. Officer Perkins served the warrant, and Miss Johnson will have to remain in jail until after the grand jury passes on the case. Miss Johnson arrived at the jail at 12.30, accompanied by Deputy Sheriff Perkins and her father, Mr. J.M. Johnson. She was closely veiled and quite composed so far as could be seen. It was decided to place her in the room occupied by Miss Mitchell, and she was taken up there. When she entered, Miss Mitchell greeted her with, Well, Lily, have you come to visit me? No, said Miss Johnson. I am under arrest for murder. Why? What did they arrest you for? You had nothing to do with it, said Miss Mitchell. And she seemed much disturbed at the trouble that had come to her friend, through her own rash act. Mr. Johnson has retained Mr. Ham Patterson to defend his daughter. Deputy Sheriff Perkins says that the arrest was a complete surprise to the girl and her family. She made no outcry, but burst into tears when he told his errand. Mr. Ward was in the city when the tragedy occurred, but did not hear of it until it had become noised about the streets. The shock it gave him may be imagined, but not described. He hurried to the undertaking establishment 
where his daughter's bloody corpse was laid out. The sight almost unmanned him, and it was some time before he recovered sufficient composure to inquire into the particulars of the killing. The body will be buried in Elmwood tomorrow. The funeral takes place from Grace Church, where Mrs. Volkmar formerly sang in the choir. Miss Mitchell's case was called in the police court this morning, and no one appearing to answer, it was continued to next Friday. It is thought that her counsel will waive examination, the case not being a bailable one. The fair prisoner passed a quiet night in her comfortable apartment at the jail. This morning, she was visited by the members of her family, who remained with her during the whole forenoon. She still declines to talk to reporters. Mr. John B. Perry says, I live next door to Mr. George Mitchell and have known Alice for nine years or more and have never considered her strong mentally. Her manner has always been flighty and unsettled and her ways different from that of most girls. She was of an impulsive disposition and given to doing very much as the present mood inclined her, whether it was to snatch up a rifle and stand about her yard shooting sparrows, or ride a bareback horse at a breakneck speed about the premises. I have never seen anything about her conduct that was at all immodest, nor was she the least bit fast as regards men. On the contrary, she seemed to care nothing for them, and rather preferred the society of her own sex. During my entire acquaintance with her and her family, I have never but twice seen her in male company. She was in my store yesterday afternoon at two o'clock, but there was nothing whatever in her action or appearance to show that she had this horrible deed in contemplation. Her manner was as it usually is. She exchanged a few words with me on some unimportant matter and walked out. It would certainly seem to me that she had determined upon the killing later. From a long and close knowledge of Alice Mitchell, her act was that of an insane woman. This next little story is out of the Nebraska State Journal, page 3. The headline, Routed the Burglar. Omaha. January 25th. A burglar gained entrance to the house of Mrs. P.F. Murphy, 2623 Dodge Street, last night, and met with a reception he was hardly expecting. Mrs. Murphy was aroused by hearing someone in her room and inquired what it was. A gruff voice warned her to keep quiet. She did so, but reaching under her pillow, she pulled out a revolver and sent a bullet in the direction of the voice. A yell told her that the leaden messenger had reached a sensitive target, and immediately afterward, she heard the intruder rushing from the room. Hastily jumping out of bed, Mrs. Murphy followed him, 
pulling the trigger as rapidly as possible, and not until every chamber was empty did the fusillade cease. The burglar reached the window where he had entered and went out as he came. Blood drops on the windowsill and a bloody trail across the porch showed plainly that the visitor's ejaculation had not been caused by fright alone. His injury was not serious enough, however, to prevent his getting away. The weapon was a small one of light caliber, but for which it is possible that Mrs. Murphy would now have more to show for her midnight campaign. And I'm actually going to just continue on with another article just below that one. An unknown man attempted to gain admission to the Boyd Theater about 8 o'clock last evening at the stage entrance, but was prevented by Joseph Kelly, a stage carpenter with the Eight Bells Company. The stranger at once drew a knife and stabbed Kelly in the left side in the region of the heart, after which he hurriedly fled. The injured man was removed to his room at the Grand Central, where a physician attended him. It was found that the blade of the knife had come in contact with a rib, but for which a fatal wound would probably have been inflicted. Kelly is resting comfortably today and will be able to resume his duties in a short time. The police have been furnished with a description of the guilty party, but no arrests have yet been made. January is a dark and depressing month for many, and Missouri's St. Louis Globe Democrat posted no less than six stories of suicide or attempted suicide on page 7. Here is one of those stories which, thankfully, did not end in a fatal fashion. A College Girl's Attempt, St. Joseph, Missouri, January 25th. Early this morning, as an officer was passing Otten's European Hotel, he heard groans issuing from one of the rooms and bursting in the door, found a young woman dying from the effects of gas. The jets in the room were all turned on full. Physicians worked with the girl for several hours and finally saved her from death. When she thought she was dying, she told the physicians that she had been deserted by a well-known young society man of Kirksville and had determined to take her life. Her name is Miss Ellen Johnson, and her parents are among the most influential and wealthy residents of Maryland, Missouri. One more off the same page, entitled A Lunatic Hangs Himself. Hopkinsville, Kentucky. John Yoakum, an inmate of the Western Lunatic Asylum, near here, from Davies County, committed suicide by hanging himself while alone in his cell at an early hour this morning. He had used a strong cord with which he tied himself to the top sash of his window. When he fell on his knees and thus swung until strangled to death. He was formerly regarded as a very dangerous person, but lately became quiet. He was the man who barricaded himself in his house at Whiteville, Davies County, 
and for days defied the officers of the law until forced to surrender. After his body was found, efforts were made to resuscitate it, but in vain. This is the second patient at the asylum who suicided by hanging in the past week, and the third in the city. So things sure will not do without an update on the Tina Davis case. On Thursday, January 22nd, the Boston Globe reported that James Trefethen, charged with the murder of Tina Davis, and William H. Smith, charged as being an accessory to the murder, were both brought from the county jail in East Cambridge, where they were now being held, to the district court in Malden that morning to answer to their charges. The prosecution said that they were not ready to proceed with the case, as Professor Wood was still in the process of examining Tina Davis's stomach for signs of poison. It was decided that the case would be postponed to January 29th, and both prisoners were remanded back to their cells. And that's that. Another episode of Aghast at the Past, Tuesday, January 26th, has come and gone. I will talk to you soon.